Get the credential you need to control the risk of Legionella and other waterborne pathogens in building water systems. Become an ASSE Certified Legionella Water Safety and Management Specialist so you can crash that Legionella party in your pipes. Guided by the world's expert Legionella party crasher, Dr. Janet Stout, Special Pathogens Laboratory, and IAPMO give you the first and only live virtual interactive ASSE approved certification training. In just three days, you get the knowledge you need to sit for the ASSE 12,080 exam. Our ASSE certified teaching team has already trained more than 400 professionals with one of the highest pass rates. Time is running out to register for the last class of 2022. This class will be October 3rd through 5th. Group discounts are available. To learn more, go to scalinguph2o.com forward slash special. Once again, that's scalinguph2o.com forward slash special. Welcome to Scaling Up, the podcast where we scale up on knowledge so we don't scale up our systems. I'm Trace Blackmore, the host of Scaling Up H2O. And Nation, it is just around the corner. I am so excited because next week we are going to AWT. We're going to Vancouver, and I am so excited. One of my favorite conventions to go to. Definitely, I see the most members in the Scaling Up Nation at an AWT event. And folks, of course, the convention and expo that AWT does every single year is where most everybody attends. I know that there's some difficulties where it's in Canada this year, but it sounds like everybody's figuring that out. And everybody that I've talked to is going to come. And we are just so excited to see everybody. So next week, when you are in Vancouver, when you are at the AWT conference, I hope that you go to find me. I'm going to be looking for you, but it's a lot easier for you to find me. So let me know what you think about this podcast. If you've got some ideas, I'd love it if you share it on our show notes page. But if there's absolutely no way, I said show notes page, I meant the show ideas page. If there's absolutely no way that you will ever do that, and the only way you can get that information is to tell me in person, let me know what that is. If you have somebody you want me to interview, let me know who that is. I'm always looking for the next on what we're doing with this show. And you all in the Scaling Up Nation help me with that each and every time I make the request. And I don't think a show goes by where I don't make that request. But I will underscore, if you are at the AWT, please come find me and let me know what you think about this show. And I would just love to shake your hand and meet you. Speaking of the AWT, if you have not registered, there is still space. They're probably going to pay a little bit extra for some airfare, but trust me, it is worth it. So September 21st through 24th, we have the AWT convention. Now, the day before that is the Business Owners Conference. And if you are like me and you own an industrial water treatment company, you need to attend this. There are still spaces left and there are limited seats at that event because there is a venue and they have to order meals and tables and chairs and all that stuff. So once all that's sold, they are done, but I'm pretty sure they still have space for you. 
So you can go to our show notes page. It will have all the information on the business owners meeting and the AWT conference. And I have to say, there's so many Rising Tide Mastermind members that are going to be at the AWT convention. Many of them are going to be at the business owners conference. So if you were thinking about joining the Rising Tide Mastermind, I hope that you look for the ribbons that people have on their name badge. And when you see one that says Rising Tide Mastermind, you ask them the question, what does it mean to be a member of the Rising Tide Mastermind? What are you getting out of it? Why do you give the time each and every week to join a call? What has it meant for you? What have you been able to do because of it? And I think you will really be impressed with all of the answers that you get. And then you can make the decision, is this something you want to take the next step in? The Rising Tide Mastermind, there's definitely a time commitment. There's definitely a financial commitment. But with that, it allows you to get to where you want to go further than where you thought you can go. And you're going to get there faster because you're going to have the help of everybody else within the mastermind. If you want to find out more about that, you can go to scalinguph2o.com forward slash mastermind, and you can read all about it. And by all means, if you're at the AWT, please find the members with the Rising Tide Mastermind ribbon and ask them all the questions that you can think of, because I think you will not get a better answer than a member can give you. With that, I hope to see you at the AWT conference. Another conference you might want to be acquainted with is WEFTEC, and that is their 95th annual conference. That's going to be in New Orleans, and the conference is October 8th through 12th, and then their expo is October 10th through 12th. If you want to learn more about WEFTEC, go to our show notes page and we will have all of that information to you. Another huge conference is Green Build. That's going to be in San Francisco, California this year, November 1st through 3rd. If you are involved in the green space, this is the conference for you. Green Build is where so many people come together that touch the building, exterior envelope, interior decorating to design, all of that stuff. If you have heard of LEED, this is all about LEED. This is how we can make buildings more efficient. This is how we can bring products in them that use less energy, that most likely are going to save people money. They might be more comfortable. They might be more ergonomic. They're definitely a lot more technology that's involved in them. So all of these things, it's just amazing all the different vendors that come to a conference like this. This is one of the biggest conferences that I have ever attended. So if you want to check this out, go to our show notes page and we will have all of that information for you. Nation, I love sharing these things with you. And by any means, if you forgot anything that I said, don't worry. It is all on our website, scalinguph2o.com. 
And the wonderful staff here at Scaling Up H2O, they have added an events calendar. So you can just simply go to the events calendar. If you don't remember what show it was that I mentioned one of these organizations, and you can just see everything that's coming up in the future, you can click on it and right there, all the information you need, including adding a calendar invite to your calendar is all right there. My staff is awesome. They're awesome because you guys are awesome. They want to make sure that all the content that we have is easily able for you to find. And then when you find that, hopefully that sparks you to do something a little bit different. It allows you to think a little bit different. And when you do that, that's how we are raising the bar in the industrial water treatment industry. Speaking of raising the bar in the industrial water treatment industry, here's a new Thinking on Water with James. Welcome to Thinking on Water with James, the segment where we don't give you the answers, we give you the topics and questions for you to think about, drop by drop. Now let's get to it. In this week's episode, we're thinking about reverse osmosis makeup for boilers. What are the advantages of using RO makeup for a boiler system? What is the recommended maximum number of cycles for a boiler on RO makeup? How might RO makeup impact condensate corrosion and neutralizing amine usage? How will a high percent condensate return impact the economics of installing an RO? What boiler savings may be the highest when changing from soft water to RO makeup? Is it the water, wastewater, fuel? Chemical costs? Why would a chemical company want to recommend RO equipment for boiler makeup? Take this week to think about using RO makeup for boilers. Be sure to follow hashtag TOW22 and hashtag ScalingUpH2O to share your thoughts on each week's thinking on water. I'm James McDonald, and I look forward to learning more from you. James, as always, thank you for making us think a little bit deeper about water treatment. Well, Nation, I spent most of the introduction talking about the Association of Water Technologies annual conference, and there's no secret. If you listen to this show, you know I'm a huge fan of the AWT, and one of the reasons is because I've given a good part of my life to the AWT. I was on the board for nine years, and I was president of that fine organization, and then today I'm still involved in their education committee. I believe in what they do, and I want to make sure that I am part of what they do, but because of that, I have met so many incredible people. Many of those people you have heard here on the podcast, and today is going to be no different. So I'm going to introduce you to a good friend of mine. I know you're going to enjoy this interview. My lab partner today is Dave Christofferson of Dave Christofferson Consulting. Dave, welcome to the Scaling Up H2O podcast. Well, thanks, Trace. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm really excited to talk to you about the presentation that you gave almost a year ago at the AWT. Wow, it was good to actually have a convention to go to, first of all, and see people. We got by through that virtual thing, but I think everybody was definitely happy to get back to face-to-face. Uh, -face. And you took a concept that I think everybody finds challenging 
you put a, a cool acronym to it and you really simplified it. So I was hoping today we could talk about what you spoke about at AWT about a year ago, and that was the woe factors. So before we do that, do you mind letting the Scaling Up Nation know a little bit about Dave Christofferson? Sure. So uh, I'm a career water treater. Um, go back to 1977 when I first started working for Olin, working for Betts. Became part owner of a water treatment company called Crown Solutions. We did full service water treatment, boiler cooling, wastewater, membranes, provided, you know, operations, contracts, built equipment, you know, did the full thing. In 2006, uh, Veolia approached us, and so we became part of Veolia, Veolia Water Technologies. Um, I've always been in the water industry, um, largely on the technical side, technical support side, product development, but have had, you know, all this stuff, all the sales, all the um, management, field operations, and so forth. So it's just a huge, intriguing field. And um, I'm convinced it's a it's a great place to be. I get a lot of satisfaction from it. So I decided, hey, I may as well just spend my time doing the, the parts I like the best. So I, I started doing consulting to work for mostly other water treatment companies. But uh, I do work for end users and training and problem solving, product development, whatever. Dave, I was thinking back to when we first met, and that was my very first board meeting for the Association of Water Technologies. And that was when we used to have a kid's table and I wasn't allowed to speak. And so that was the very <laughs> first time that we met. And by the way, the AWT has changed that. No more kid's table. But I do remember the first time we really had a conversation and we were at something at the AWT headquarters and you and I and somebody else, I can't remember who was with us, we had walked across the street to get lunch at a Burger King. And I was, I had my meter because uh, I had just received it and I was trying to get data. So I was just taking samples of a bunch of stuff with my ATP meter. I don't know if you remember that. And I started swabbing things in Burger King and we were second guessing whether <laughs> we needed to eat there or not. Oh, yeah, that was something I would probably try to forget. Okay. <laughs> I remember you were shocked when I took the lids that were for the cups out at the drink fountain and I swabbed that. And that was one of the higher ATPs that we saw in that. And, and that ultimately came a paper. I think that was the last time I ate at Burger King, actually. Yeah. <laughs> so Burger King, I'm sure that was just that one. Yeah. Uh, but that was that particular Burger King on that particular day. And uh, just trying to get some data on ATP. And um, yeah, we, we got some data we probably shouldn't have gotten before we finished our sandwiches. <laughs> yeah. So and then that leads us to uh, what you're doing now. And you alluded a little bit to it, but you decided that you wanted to help other people and start your own firm with consulting. Tell us a little bit about that. So I think there is a high demand still for people that are willing to give their time on projects that are important that maybe other people don't have the time for because they're running a business and they're answering to other people and so forth. So I have, uh, you know, a lot of experience I, I've been there, done that is my forte, I would say, as that as your hair gets grayer or starts to fall out. So I, I think I have opportunities to help people uh, train, to help solve problems, 
uh, to go places, to product develop, um, especially to AWT companies, but also still to end users who are looking for somebody that come in and say, hey, I've got this problem, what's, what's going on? So for me, that's what gives me enjoyment, not filling out expense reports or you know doing some of the other things that's necessary apart about running a business. So I guess I'm a, I fill gaps. Um, I think there's needs and, and um, that's where I get my enjoyment particularly problem solving. If there's a, a problem that needs to get fixed or they don't really know what's causing the problem, it's a challenge and an opportunity and it's fun when you come up with a solution. Well, let's bookend your career. So that's what you're doing right now. Let's go back to the very beginning. How did you find water treatment? <laughs> well, if you want to go way back, when I was 18 years old, a day after I graduated from high school, I got a job as a deckhand on an ore boat so on an ore boat, you have steam boilers. I was a, you know, the utility guy did everything. Well, we went through the Sioux locks. We had a surprise water inspection um, and we failed. We had coliform bacteria in our drinking water in the tanks. So since I was 18 and planning to go to college, for some reason, I was the smartest guy on the boat. So they put me in charge of sterilizing the water. So that was my ex first experience. I was destined then to be a water treater. When I went to college, I was a chemist. It turns out my chemistry professor and advisor was one of the top 10 water chemists in the nation. Had no idea that at the time. Then I was looking for a job after I got out of undergraduate school, interviewed with people, and Olin Water Services interviewed me. And I was like, wow, that sounds like something I could do. So that's how it all started. How long were you with Olin? Four years. Four years. Um, really enjoyed it. Great company, great people. I didn't think at the time that they were destined to stick around long, and they, they didn't. You know, they sold to Drew. So I just made a career move, went to Betts, uh, did that for five years. And with some other people there, we had an opportunity to, um, you know, go out on our own and do it the way we wanted to do it. And, you know, so I, I owe the water treatment industry for teaching me from the beginning, but, you know, I've, I've continuously tried to learn every day since then. When you decided to leave somebody else and go into business with your partners, what were some of the things that you were thinking about? Was that, was that more scary or was it more alluring because you could do the things you wanted to do the way you wanted to do them? Are you glad you don't know all the things you probably should have known when you were doing that? Tell us about that experience. <laughs> yeah, for sure. It's it's scary. And if you knew all the things that were going to happen or roadblocks, you know, you might not have done it. The allure was, you know, doing it your way, making your own decisions, making your own products, being a solution provider. So that my my water treatment career has always been about what's the problem, what's the best way to solve it. Uh, and that's what we had the opportunity to do, whether it was chemical equipment, operationals or, or whatever. The scary part was, you know, you got no money, you got no backup, your house is on collateral and everything else. So I asked my dad, I said, should I do this or not? He goes, hey, you know, it's risky everywhere. You're working for somebody else. That's more risky. So, you know, if you say, well, OK, well, it's and it's kind of what we're going to get to, I guess, the risk factor index. Um, you just you just compare the risks, um, but the rewards were much greater, I thought. And then I guess a time came where the phone rang and somebody said, hey, we want to buy your company. Yeah, it was uh, we didn't have an end game. We weren't looking. 
but we were working on pretty big projects, um, you know, more money than we could get from the bank. Veolia came along and said, we'd like to be your bank. You can do these bigger projects. Uh, we'd like to use you to grow the business after selling U.S. Filter. So it seemed like, okay, well, we can do that. We've, we've been running, you know, Crown as a small business for a pretty long time, got our kicks doing that. Let's see what the next chapter brings. And for me, it was really good because then they asked me to be one of their international directors for the chemical business. So I got to travel and work all over the world for quite a while. Tell us about that experience. Uh, well, Veolia, you know, now buying Suez or in the integration process of Suez, they're, they're global. So, you know, have you ever worked in India? No. A total different culture. Have you ever worked in China? No. Have you ever worked in, well, really Europe? So you, you start finding uh, the whole lot of uh, water treatment problems are the same, but the approach is different. The resources are different. The attitudes of the people are different. You know, how are you going to go about getting it? it? It's just a huge, huge effort to get to places. You know, you're always jet lagged when you're 12 hours, hours upside down in China or, you know, Singapore or something. So you you, you got to do it kind of when you're sleepy or not in your best. But at the same time, just the the differences in the culture and learning all the, it's just a, you know, wonderful experience. So I'm, I'm really, really glad that I was able to, to experience that. Dave, if somebody's listening to this and they're thinking about getting into this industry, what advice do you have? Do it. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, it's a great industry. I mean, if you think about um, what we need, we need water, we need food, we need energy. Those are really good areas to get into. Water is such a broad category. There's so many places, whether you're in a, at a water plant, a wastewater plant, industrial, all the technologies that go to it, software development. I mean, it's just surprising how many opportunities there are. If you don't like something, move laterally in it. You're still in the industry. It's a secure industry. It's a necessary and it's a growing industry. So, And it's fun and great people. So I, I can't think of any reason why you wouldn't. Dave, being in the industry for over 40 years, you've seen financial corrections, recessions. How does our industry fare through all those? Well, again, um, we're dependent. It, it depends what segment you're in. So you try to be diversified, you know, so you have, you don't put all your eggs in one basket. You know, if you're an industrial water treater, um, they still need health care. They still need food. The automotive may slow down, but there's still, you know, industrial applications. So you just have to be flexible a little bit. Um, and I'd say even within each one of those industries, it's valuable to have skills around boiler, cooling, membranes, wastewater, you know, water recycle. You can pick any area you want. And without that big of an effort, I think you can become a localized expert and really increase your value. Um, and security at the same time. Well, let's get into the reason that you are on the show today. And we're going to talk about risk factors. And anytime we go into a new client or existing client, we're always wondering what the risk factors are. You came up with a great way for us to assess and then also communicate those risks. Uh, and ultimately, how do we correct some of those things? So that's what I was hoping to talk about now. So tell us about that. How did you decide that you needed a better way to communicate risk? Well, I think what you just said 
water treaters, especially as they get some years experience, almost intuitively assess risks when they're um, going into the plant, uh, trying to get new clients or, you know, their own clients. I don't think we do it formally enough. It was my thought process on it. And I think we miss a lot of things when we're not intentional about it. We make too many assumptions. Uh, One thing that I've learned, and I, I talked to you a little bit about this earlier, I think when you get into more complicated treatment processes, when you're doing very complicated recycle projects, it forces you to be more critical in your thinking, you know, asking more questions than you normally would. Well, wait a minute. What if this series of events happens, then what do I do? And how is that going to impact the operation, you know, the operation of the wastewater recycle plant, the operation of the production plant, whatever. So you start asking yourself a lot more critical questions because you need to, because What I've discovered is water treatment is about the 95% of the time, and that's easy. You set that up, um, you understand what's normal, you set up all that program, but that's not where most of the problems occur. And the most of the problems occur at that 5% time, you know, weird times when nobody's there or when the pump failed or when some process happened that shouldn't have happened. So what's the risk? Well, if if all of the problems occur and you know that 5% is going to occur and you haven't accounted for it, you've got a failure. You know, you can't be 95% successful in water treatment. You need to be closer to 100% because we don't, you know, our treatment chemistries aren't designed to remove the scale. You know, that that's another process. Our, our treatment chemistry doesn't fill in holes when we pit or corrode. So you have to anticipate. So, That means we need to be a lot more critical, I believe, in asking the questions. So years ago, I started doing that as part of a a training. You know, what's what are we trying to accomplish here? What's risk? Risk is um, not having the outcomes that you want. Okay, where do we start with that? Well, what are the outcomes that you want? I want 100 percent production. The plant manager said so. I, you know, I don't want any Legionella in my cooling system. I don't want anybody getting sick. These heat exchangers, the approach temperatures have to stay where they're at. All all those kinds of things. Okay, so that's what we do. Now, what's going to prevent that from happening? And I determined, I guess we all have, that there's three main areas. Water is one, but I can take a really nasty water, and if it's the same water every day, have better success than I have a moderate water that has a lot of variability to it. So it's more than just the water. It's the water and the variability of the water. So that's the woe part. You know, I tried to come up with a way to remember what order of things. So I call it the woe relative risk factor index. The second part is operations. So if you have really um, good water, let's say a low risk water, whatever, you know, your process is defines that and the water quality. So let's say it's a one for this particular application, it's a low risk water. What about my operations? If my operations are no good, if I have poor you know, control there at the site, um, nobody's really looking after it, um, I can have a really good water and still have really bad results because I have a high-risk operations. So you got to look at that part too. You have total failure, even though you have the right chemical, the right water. And then equipment. Equipment and equipment design is extremely important, sometimes outside of our control. Um, But if you need RO water to your boiler and you only have one RO and you need to clean it, what do you do? 
some people say we won't shut the RO down. Well, okay, well, if we do that, maybe we won't be able to make enough water or maybe when we try to clean it, when it does go down, we won't be able to get it clean. So our equipment or our equipment design is a problem. So you really have to critically examine all of those and then know where to go to try to, in the future, uh, improve the situation. Dave, that all sounds great. And I love the acronym. I think woe is me is what everybody thinks of. We've got these risk factors. So people are going to remember it. But how do we use it? Yeah. So when I was was working on risk factors and under trying to understand risk factors, I said, ah, this really needs to be formalized. And all of a sudden I go, ah, this could be like the LSI. You know, I could come up with this index. Everybody would understand, you know, oh, that plant over there, that's a two, two, one plant, you know, uh, moderate water risk, moderate operations risk and uh, low because it has really good equipment in there. And so I started, you know, having this dream that I have this new index that everybody's going to use just like the LSI. So I wrote this all up and I sent it to our buddy, Mike Standish. And Mike said, now this isn't even fair. He didn't say, whoa. And that's where I came up with water operation uh, equipment. He didn't say, whoa, on there, partner. But he did say, hey, wait a minute. This is way too subjective to be, you know, that analytical. But I do think it makes sense for uh, plants uh, and companies to use it on a relative basis. So what may be high risk for one company because of the field or their people, or it may be low risk for somebody else. So that's when, with Mike's suggestion, I called it the relative risk factor index, and I set my expectations a lot lower. <laughs> so just as an exposure and a, and a process, I think internally, it helps you determine, you know, what kind of chemistry do I need is one example. So if I have a high-risk water and it's a very sensitive program, I, I'm going to go with a robust program. I'm going to go with something that has, you know, high-performance polymers, maybe PBTCHEDP for the scale, or if I have a high corrosion problem, a phosphate zinc problem. Anyways, it, it can lead you to what kind of chemistry I need here. If it's an LSI-1, you know, maybe I'm over-treating this water, you know, too, too high, too robust, or, or whatever. So it can lead you to the right chemical program. But at the same time, it can lead you and suggest who should be servicing this account. You know, this is a hard account. There's a lot of potential problems. There's some high temperatures here. There's some, you know, really sensitive compliance issues here, whatever. Is this a, a rookie account or is this a 20 years senior account? So a really good consideration is if a plant um, is rated and you have it as a 333 internally by your company, that means, wait a minute, do we have the right person servicing this? Maybe we need backup going in there more frequently compared to a 111. 111 can still have a lot of problems, but maybe that's a better account to say, hey, we don't need to have you know trace going into that one so often. Dave, just to clarify, so one is extremely low risk, two is a moderate risk, and three is as risky as you can get. Yeah. I started originally on a one to 10 scale, and I thought that's way too complicated. And this is relative, and it's just to give you an idea. So I simplified it, one, two, and three. So low, moderate, and high risk, whatever that is 
for you is a great starting point. And like Mike told me, you know, this is rather subjective, um, but I think maybe if you use it internally, it can become a lot more objective than subjective, especially if you assign the right questions to each one of those risk factors. And Dave, just so you know, I have Mike look at my papers for AWT as well. And it's because he he's so good with letting you know what you need to know. And uh, yeah, he does a really good job of, of maybe telling you you can do some things a little bit better. And then you do that. Yeah. You go and you rewrite some things and you make them better. So I have definitely been through the same Mike Standish experience that you just mentioned. Yeah. Well, just to be clear, though, Leslie and Chelsea are, are better people than Mike. So I don't want to... <laughs> I don't want to give too much credit to Mike. Uh, Nation, those are his wife and daughter and uh, radical <laughs> polymers. They're just incredible people and uh, have given so much to the organization that you and I volunteer with, the Association of Water Technology, which is how we all met. Right. So, But I've gotten us off topic. I apologize. Yeah, so I'm, I do too. So a couple of the other things is service requirements. You know, how, how often do you need to go in there? You know, some some accounts, the whole problem is they need better service, higher service, more frequent service. That's their problem. You would know that if you, you know, critically evaluated it and inside, uh, assigned the right risk factors to it. For, for me, another really, really important successful outcome is having a good open communications with the client. Certainly, some clients are easier to do that with than others. But for me, an educated client, somebody that understands the situation, is much preferred over somebody that doesn't want to take the time or, or doesn't know and understand. So if you have done this, you can explain to your customer why we need remote monitoring, because this is, you know, this is high risk. Uh, I'm not in there enough. You're not there enough. This is why we need to buy another RO. This is why we need, you know, a better control system and a better pump system, whatever. So from a communication standpoint, you have done the groundwork so that when you go to your client, you can explain the, the risk factors. What you know, here's what we need to get done. You told me that this is the most important thing in the plant. Well, for that to be successful, I've evaluated all the risks and this is what we need to do to get there. And then the last thing is if you know what's risky or all the different things that are involved in assessing and having a successful outcome, then you can set goals for improvements and you can time to time go back and reassess the, the, the numbers that you've assigned, this three-digit number. You know, my goal is to take this from a 322 to a 311. I can't change the water, let's say, but I can do the other things. I can improve operations. We can put in the right equipment. And overall, then, we have a lower risk factor and a greater chance of success. Dave, I think this is brilliant. It's brilliant in its simplicity, but it allows us to communicate through all of the different water treaters involved in our company, but also to our customer. So how do we set that up? Since it is subjective, if we were to start using this factor in our company, how should we get together and determine what a one is, what a two is, what a three is? So we're all speaking the same language. Yeah. And I think that's a really good question and a great thing to do. And I think it starts, which I tried to do in my paper and my presentation at AWT, is a list of questions. The critical things to know is 
uh, based on whatever process it is, the questions are a little bit different, maybe some of the same questions. And some of the questions maybe aren't so obvious. And so create your own set of lists uh, or your own set of questions, your own list of, of the questions. You know, unfortunately, in water treatment, I find a lot of high risk just because of competition. You know, if if you tell me that you're treating this plant this year, another water treater treated it last year, another one treated it the year before that, and another one the year before that, I am very suspicious that the chemical program is not what it should be or the service is not what it should be because it's been bid out. You know, that's a high risk to me. You know, if a plant changes that often and they keep changing because of costs or things, me needing 15 or 50 or whatever PPM or whatever it is, and I'm only at 10 because I'm at a very high risk now. Those are things you have to evaluate. Um, how how responsive is the, is the customer? Not just, you know, how much iron do we have in the water or how much, you know, phosphate do we have in the water? Those are the water questions. But a lot of the other questions are your interpersonal situations, the politics, the history. You know, a dirty system is hard to keep from getting dirtier than a clean system. So, you know, what's the condition of it? Has it deteriorated? Are they willing to do the cleaning? It's too too long and too complicated, I think, to go through every system. But the ones start to become obvious um, around, and it's relative again. So, you know, this water here in this location is relatively easy. Why is it? What, what makes it a low-risk water? Well, I don't have high scaling. Um, it's not particularly corrosive, you know, and in the application that I'm using it in, it's easy to treat from a chemical treatment standpoint. Okay, low-risk water. Oh, what about this water? This water is a, you know, calcium level from 100 to 250, alkalinity changes, iron level changes. That becomes, you know, much more risky. Is it moderate or high? You'll have to determine that. So the questions and the processes and the applications, I think when you start critically creating the lists of questions, the needs, things that can go wrong, what would happen? Why isn't this working? I, I just had a very simple case two days ago. Uh, it's a very good water, low risk water, consistent water quality, and it's softened. It's used in a cooling system, shell and tube heat exchanger, um, skin temperatures 120 to 140, shouldn't have a problem. The program that they have is a robust chemical with PTSA tracer, and they had pictures of severe scaling, and they want to know what's wrong. To me, it's a low-risk water. That's a one. They have good chemical treatment. They have a relatively easy equipment design and system. What does that leave? Operations. How often are you in there? Once a month. Does the plant do any testing? No. How do you know the softeners are working? Um, what's going on? So it's those kinds of things. You can, you know, use it however you want, but it's to steer you in the right direction to ask the right questions and then to monitor properly and make sure that you're getting close to that 100% and not missing on the 5% or even in this case, it might have been a lot more than 5%. I think it's brilliant because again, in its simplicity, and it allows people to communicate with a common language. I do want to ask, if a company wanted to start using this, say, in their survey process, what recommendations would you have? Oh, I think that's a great place to start. 
again, it creates a common language for your company. And I think it uses everybody's talent and contribution. So you you create this as part of your survey form and it, it you know, survey form, nice thing about a survey form is it's a formal process. And that's what this is. I've formalized this so you don't just, you know, walk away going, hmm, this sounds like a pretty risky account. Well, why? Well, it's because of all these things. You know, it's, I, I've looked about the water and the variability. I've looked at its operation and its controls, and I've looked at equipment and the design. And I understand all of those now. And, you know, when we go back and we assess it, we can see how risky this is or what's the chance that we're not going to have the outcomes that we wanted. So in a survey, you can do that, too. You you have, as part of your survey form, the questions that you've deliberately created for each process, you know, for the RO or the demineralizer, or the boiler cooling or whatever, you fill those out and then you fill it in. It, what's my number? It's a one. You know, it's my number. It's a two. And not just one person, but three people do it. Three or four people do it. And you say, well, wait a minute. Why did you give that a three? I, I didn't see it was that high risky. And you go, well, duh, did you ever consider this? And you go, no, I, I didn't. No wonder you said it was a three. So it, it I guess it kind of forces people to, sh- you know, give and take and share uh, their experiences and grow. And so at the end, you have an idea of how much service this is going to be, what kind of chemistry you need, um, and then how to, how to propose it, how to communicate it. I have a project right now. It's very complicated water. I can't get into too much of the details of it. It absolutely led me to develop a new product specifically for this because of the variability, the changes way above threshold inhibition capabilities sometimes that we had to address that with dispersion chemistries and and other things. The risk assessment then allowed us to say, we got to do some modeling in French Creek on this one. There's too many variabilities. And um, it directed us how to present this to the potential client and why we said we had to do what we had to do, why they had to make some investments, because the chance of success is, is not good if you don't do all of those things. So, you know, to me, it's just a, a tool that you can consider and based on how your company operates, the tools that you already have, it may be something you're already doing in another manner. That's fine. Um, I made a spreadsheet and I'm happy to share that if anybody wants it, where I put in all the questions and then you just score it. And it gives you the score based on the water, the operations, the equipment, and then an overall score. So if it's useful or not, you know, you might have a 1.5 plant versus a 3.0 plant, but yeah, you can use it however you want. Well, Dave, if you're okay with it, we'll put the paper, the presentation and the spreadsheet on our show notes page. Oh, sure. No problem. So if you and I were using this, we're going to create a dialogue. It's going to allow us to communicate better, but we speak a common language of understanding water treatment. How do we use this to better explain things to our customers? <laughs> I think I have spent a lifetime trying to do both. I, I think internally you want to talk as technical as you can. Um, if people understand chemistry, saturation ratios, then you do it. If you talk to a client and they want to know it's smooth as a baby's behind, that's what you use, you know, that kind of language. Um, so from a client standpoint, I think you you can demonstrate the process without getting into too much details. 
what are the major considerations in a successful water treatment program or potential for failure? So you can use, use it like that. You don't have to go into all the details that you, you will go into as a water treatment company, all the specific questions, unless they need to. You have an RO machine and an RO machine is on or off and you need 200 gallons a minute, right? So you're the customer. That's what you need. You don't need to know all the things that we need to know to keep that RO going if you turn that responsibility over to us. But I do want you to know it's dependent on a lot of things. It's dependent on having power. We have to be able to post flush. We have to be able to feed chemistry 100% of the time. We have to dechlorinate 100% of the time, or you're not going to get the water quality you want. You're not going to get the water volume that you want. So you you can go complicated, explain it in details, or you can just say, basically, you said you want 100% production plant manager. You're not going to get it if we don't do these things because I've done the risk assessment. Dave, when you put the woe formula together, what did you consider success? Why did you put it together? When I do training, I think, and this ha- this goes way back to a guy that used to work for us a long time ago, and then he went into a different field. But he told me in his field, he, he just doesn't find people that do or have been trained in problem solving like he used to or when he was in water treatment. He started with Nalco a long, long time ago. And so I said, you, you know, I, I think so, too. Um, so I this was years ago. I put together a training on troubleshooting. Um, and one of the critical parts of that is I don't think very people know what they don't know. They don't know how to write, the, ask the right questions. But at the same time, they don't even know that they don't know so many things. And as as you ask the right questions, you start learning and get more and more knowledge you know, that the other thing that happens is you learn more of what you don't know. <laughs> so it's like, oh, this is this is just never going to end. But that's that's right. So I guess the whole point of doing this is to lead people, direct people into intentionally asking more questions, considering critically all the other things that could go wrong, not just here. This is a you know, this is a pretty standard program. We'll use the same chemistry we've used everywhere else. No, every place is different. Everything has variability, different people. You have to ask more questions. And I guess the whole goal of this is just what can we do to be better water treaters? What can we do to get more success? That was my goal. Dave, let me ask. There are people out there that are intrigued. They definitely hear that you know what you are doing. If they wanted to contact you, what are some of the things that you could help them with? And then how can they contact you? Yeah. So when I started Dave Chris Consulting, um, I didn't do a website. So <laughs> I'm easy. I have a phone. I have email address. Um, I have LinkedIn. You know, I've, I've uploaded some papers to e- LinkedIn. So contact me just by, you know, Chris Darson, Dave at gmail.com or my phone numbers. You know, it's normal contact information. I'm easy. I'm, I'm very um, accessible generally. If you want help, if you want some training, you know, I'm, I give a lot of free advice just because, uh, you know, it doesn't take very long and uh, I have a lot of friends. 
but I also I have a minimal charge. I mean, I'm a consulting, so I'm I'm in business. So if you want to hire me to do some professional training or problem solving or something like that, it's you know I'm I'm open for that. Well, Dave, we will put all of that contact information on our show notes page, so people don't have to worry about jotting down anything while they're driving. Most people listen to us while we're driving or while they're driving. (laughs) So uh, by all means, keep your hands on 10 and 2, and we'll have all of that for you on our show notes page for this episode. Well, Dave, I'm not quite done with you yet. I've got some lightning round questions for you. So are you ready for those? I think probably not, but go ahead. (laughs) All right. So you now have the ability to go back to your very first day as an industrial water treater. What advice would you give yourself? So that one is pretty easy because I give that advice to to everybody because what I discovered in water treatment, and then I, I think I... I assume this is true in most careers, is that people learn their jobs as quickly and as well enough as they can to be comfortable. And what I found is I was very uncomfortable in my early years. I was scared, you know, of competition. So I wanted to learn as quick as I could. But then I found out those people didn't continue learning. You know, they plateaued pretty quickly. So my advice is don't do that because you can grow and grow beyond everybody else without that much effort if you just learn uh, with intent and learn to learn it, to know it, to be able to use it in the future. So that's my advice. Have a continuous growth plan, uh, and it's so much more rewarding if you do that. What are the last few books that you've read? <laughs> that um, I'm almost afraid to to say because... Uh, I read a lot of books. I started a book club some years ago. So I read a book club book a month and then another one. And the last one I read is <laughs> John Boehner's book on the house. Uh, and we try to avoid political books, but Boehner lives in my neighborhood and he's going to be a guest speaker for ours. So we decided, OK, well, we'll read that one. But I have a I have a lot that I recommend. And this is and if you haven't seen this one, I accidentally ran into it at the library a couple months ago. And I, I said, I can't believe it. It's called Water, a Biography. Well, that sounds really um, interesting. It is. It's uh, it's like a history around water and, and how civilization uh, was totally dependent on water. So it's like a history book around water. Um, and it's a brand new book. So it's called Water, a Biography. I read the new map, uh, Energy Climate and the Clash of Nations, which is it was almost exactly predicting what happened in Russia and Ukraine. But South China Seas, all of those things, all the oil uh, problems and stuff like that. It's fascinating new book. But the three books I'd really plug that go on with my risk factor index and learning and so forth. Um, one is Adams Grant. It's a new book, relatively new book, and it's called the um, Think Again, The Power of Knowing What You Don't Know. It's a great book. And then there's two neuroscientists, um, PhDs from the Boston area, and each one of them wrote a book. I don't even know if they know each other. One's called Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain. It's a relatively small book, uh, really fascinating, new stuff, things that you thought you knew about the brain that people thought they knew about the brain. They're just wrong. It's think again. You know, they've learned a whole lot more of how the brain works. And then the, the other one is remember the science of memory and the art of forgetting. 
she's an expert on Alzheimer's, so she can tell you uh, how to head off Alzheimer's. But just how your brain remembers things, you learn things and how to remember them and how to get them to stick. Those are some really good books. When they make a movie about your life, who do you want playing you? <laughs> uh, that one, that one's easy because my kids all think I look like Lieutenant Dan <laughs> from Forrest Gump, uh, Gary Sinise. So. I would say him. I don't know that many actors and stuff. I don't watch that many movies, but I, he seems like a pretty nice guy. And my kids always say I look like him. So that would be it. Yeah, he's a fantastic guy. He started something called the Sinise Foundation, where he helps veterans. He is just amazing with all the things that he does. Great choice. Last question. You can now talk with anybody throughout history who to be with and why. Yeah, I've heard those before. So I, I'm not very good at that, but I, th I gave it a thought. Um, and so I thought, well, what are some characteristics that would be interesting to me? Somebody who's adventurous. I like thinkers, people that are thinking outside the box, adventurers and so forth. So I, I don't know why this name came up, but it did Aristotle, because um, the guy's phenomenal. He's like the father of everything. I haven't read a biography on him, but he was like the father of natural science, the father of logic, the father of everything. And this is what, 300 BC or something like that. So I guess it's him. I'd want to know why did he, how did he think, you know, so many thoughts and how did he come up with the things that he did, the process that he used? It'd be pretty cool, I guess. So there might be a whole lot of other people, but um, that would be one for sure. Well, I'm sure there are a lot of people that were wondering how you came up with the thoughts you did and how you came up with the process that we talked about today, but we're sure glad you did. And thank you for coming on the podcast and sharing it with us. Yeah, it's been fun. Thanks a lot. How cool was that? Dave had an idea. It's an idea that probably all of us have thought about but he created something with it. And as he mentioned, if you wanna see any of the materials that he mentioned, the paper he wrote, the presentation that he gave, or the Excel sheet that he's sharing with us, those will all be on our show notes page for this episode for you to go ahead and read through and hopefully start using in your day to day. The thing I love about his assessment is it creates a common language. We're in a very specific industry, and we all talk about it a little bit different than other people. And then you add customers to that, and now that's totally different. By us using a common language, by us working with other people in our companies and understanding what the risk assessment of a one, two, or a three means we can now communicate better across the company. We can now make sure when we're doing annual reviews that we are all prepared with the things that we need to present to that customer. We can also now bring that customer into a different conversation where they can have a different level of understanding because they can see how we're putting risk on their account. And we might even compare them to another facility that they have us do and why the risk might be different. And we can say that if we change some of this equipment, if we change how things are operated, if we put some of this pre-treatment on, we're able to reduce the risk assessment. And that now 
allows us to make the program even better. But it gives us handles that we can all talk about it and move that account to a different direction. Now, Nation, there is no doubt about it. It is hard to get chemical these days. It's hard to get any supply. It's hard to get equipment. So we want to make sure that our customers truly understand what they need. And with us having to do so much more work because it's so hard to get supplies, if we can get better equipment on the location, that allows us to spend the time that we need to with that customer doing things that only we can do. If we can now convince the customer to automate some of those processes, it gives us more time for us to be industrial water treaters and not compensating because somebody was too cheap to buy a piece of equipment that could allow you to do your job better. I think that this is a tool that allows you to communicate what is so difficult to communicate to our customers and give them a value so you can get better equipment, better operations, better pre-treatment in your accounts so you can do your job better. And when you're doing your job better, you're going to get noticed. You're also going to be a lot happier. And that is another way that we are raising the bar in the industrial water treatment world. Well, Nation, as I mentioned, I hope to see you next week at the AWT conference. Please come up to me. I want to meet you. And if you're traveling there, please travel safely. As always, we will have a brand new episode for you next week of Scaling Up H2O. Nation, where do you want to go? What is the next step for you and how are you going to get there? Those are tough questions and they're even tougher when you're trying to answer them on your own. That's why I've created the Rising Tide Mastermind because you don't have to be on your own anymore. We all take value in you reaching your next level to success and we will help you get there. Go to scalinguph2o.com forward slash mastermind to find out more.